Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning, Episode 2. Emergency room. We left the doctor's office, went straight to the hospital, and checked into the emergency room with our instructions from the physician's assistant. The intake team checked Jim's blood pressure, asked him some questions, and directed him to sit in the waiting room, where we festered for seven hours. Throughout the course of the day, I periodically checked at the information desk to find out if Jim would be seen soon. We'll call you when it's his turn, was the rote response. I called Jim's doctor's office and asked them to please call the emergency department to get him in faster. They said they couldn't do anything. They explained they had no influence over the hospital's emergency room. I asked if they would have Jim's doctor call and make a request as a professional courtesy to open up space for Jim. Dr. R is on vacation. I know that, but would you please call him? If you really think he's having some kind of pulmonary event, You'd call the ER doctors and express the urgency here, wouldn't you? Whoever I was talking to was exasperated by my persistence. She said she'd call the doctor and relay my urgent message. I'm sure she just said that to get me off the phone, because no one from the doctor's office ever called the ER. I was worried, but I told myself that if Jim's condition was urgent, the emergency room would make him a priority, and someone from Jim's doctor's office would have called. Luck was not with us. We walked into the ER on January 20th, 2020. It was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a vacation day for many. It also happened to be the first sunny, warmish day in a while, and we were in the middle of one of the worst flu seasons on record. All the folks who didn't want to venture out in the snow and the yuck over the weekend for their emergencies showed up in the ER that day. People were packed like sardines in the waiting room and down the hallways. It was standing room only. If you squinted, you could mistake the place for Calcutta. Some homeless-looking dude made himself comfortable smack dab in the middle of the cluster, taking up a much-needed patient chair for his respite. Apparently, he was a regular because the hospital staff knew him by name. No emergent ailment brought him to this chaos party. He was just hanging out, enjoying a place to chill which might have been fine on any other day, but not when the waiting room was this crowded. A guard came and politely, yet firmly, invited him to leave. When he got up, everyone around him recoiled in disgust. I couldn't see anything from my vantage point, and I certainly wasn't going to go over there and investigate. But judging from the continuous gagging coming from his chair neighbors, I believe he relieved himself while enjoying the warm comfort of his seat. A custodian showed up to assess the situation and extended a knowing sympathy to the people around the soiled chair. He announced that he'd be back with cleaning supplies post-haste. Part of that sentence was true. He did come back, about an hour later, but without cleaning supplies. He hung out at the information desk and chatted with staff like it was coffee break. Several people sitting around the soiled chair complained multiple times to no avail. One lady in particular was on the verge of hurling the entire time because of the nasty that guy left behind. 
but there was nowhere else for her to be while she waited for her turn. We continued to listen for Jim's name while other people were called one by one. This is how the callback process went. A staff person would emerge from the door we were sitting right next to and bellow a name across the sea of people. If the person didn't respond, they'd yell a few more times. Then they'd come back ten minutes later and call out again. If the person still didn't reply, they would page the person over the intercom in case they were on the premises but not in the actual germ pool of a waiting room. The whole process struck me as oddly inefficient. At 12.30, I told Jim I was going to run to the grocery store and that he should call me when he was called. I thought for sure he'd be called in by the time I got back. There wasn't any food in the house since I'd been on vacation, and I figured I'd get a quick shop in so we could have dinner when we got home. Though tentative, my brain remained on a normalcy track. None of these health professionals had a sense of urgency where Jim was concerned, so my assumptions about a manageable health situation continued to be reinforced. I called him while I was gone to check in. He was still in the waiting room. I returned an hour later, fully expecting to find him in a room being assessed by someone. Nope. He was still in the waiting room, looking and feeling worse. At four o'clock, I went to the desk again and asked if Jim was going to be seen. They said they were getting a room ready for him as we spoke. Finally. But a whole nother hour went by. At five, a petite Asian woman came out and called Jim's name. We got up and followed her through the door and down the hall. While we were walking with her, she mumbled in a heavy accent, I called you an hour ago. What? No, you didn't. We were sitting right next to the door, we replied. It turned into a, yes, I did. No, you didn't, exchange. I was already on my last nerve, and from my perspective, this attendant was being antagonistic. I mean, why in the world would she even bother to tell us that she had called us an hour ago? To scold us? To cover her ass and make it look like she was doing her job? Finally, I said, Well, if you had called us and we didn't answer, why weren't we paged like everyone else? To which she replied, Paging not good. Whatever the hell that meant. As this inanity played out, we were shown to Jim's holding cell. The space looked to be about 15 feet by 10 feet. Medical equipment in the gurneys took up most of the floor space. A curtain split the room into two patient areas, creating an illusion of privacy. If the curtain was a wall, the space would resemble a broom closet. It looked like a setup for a scene from a Marx Brothers movie. Seriously, I was waiting for Groucho to show up in a white coat with a saw in his hand. The patient sharing the space was only a couple feet away on the other side of the curtain. His visitor was large and loud. She was intimately closer to me, sitting in the one and only chair that could fit in the closet. Every time she stood up, she knocked the chair into me through the curtain, so I moved to the foot of Jim's gurney, as it was the only free real estate left that provided a small buffer of personal space. At one point, she got on her cell phone and started speaking as if she didn't have a phone at all and was trying to communicate with someone in Antarctica, adding to the circus-like atmosphere. Our patient neighbor had multiple visitors cycling through, in addition to his main person, which was concerning to me. If this patient had so many visitors, how long had he been in the closet? Were we going to be here that long? Plus, adding more people made the loud, cramped space even louder and crampeder. By then, Jim was feeling absolutely horrible and had a terrible headache. I felt so bad for him. He just wanted a Tylenol. 
Trying to get a Tylenol in that ER would have been a miracle akin to raising the dead. Granted, last time Jim wanted something for a headache in that emergency room, it was 1994. We had just gotten back from our honeymoon, a camping trip in Allegheny State Park. We had borrowed a friend's mountain bike for Jim so we could ride together. We decided to take one last ride through the woods behind our house before we returned the bike. Jim was not an experienced mountain biker by any stretch, but he had all the elasticity a 30-year-old enjoys, accompanied by an adventurous spirit. Local enthusiasts had set up an entire bike course which included a big hill with a decent-sized mogul at the bottom. There were some local college students riding the course when we got there. We watched for a while. Then Jim decided he was going to give the course a try. When he started down the hill, I turned my back for a second to talk to one of the students. I knew something bad happened because of the look on the kid's face. I whipped around, and sure enough, Jim was flat on his back at the bottom of the hill with the bike on top of him. We all ran down the hill to find Evil Knievel had knocked himself clean out. The students called 911 while I gently tried to revive Jim. When he came to, he asked, Where am I? Uh-oh, I thought. We're on Pinnacle Hill. How did I get here? I started asking questions on a backward timeline to see how much of his memory he'd lost. Do you remember taking the bikes off the porch? No. Do you remember borrowing the bike from John and Bryce? No. Do you remember riding in Allegheny? No. Hmm, this is bad, I thought. Now we're really in dangerous territory if the answer to this next question isn't what it should be. Do you remember our wedding? We're married? he exclaimed with disturbed wonder. Oh my God! I almost hit him in the head again to knock everything back in place. The EMTs showed up and strapped Jim to a backboard. He was transported to this same ER where he waited immobilized on the backboard for about five hours. It should come as no surprise that he developed a headache. He asked someone for a Tylenol. A young woman, without any identification, showed up with a syringe filled with Percocet. He didn't want to be off his tits. He just wanted a Tylenol for his headache. She didn't hide her extreme irritation when he declined the shot. Back to our current situation, we asked a nurse, at least I think she was a nurse, for Tylenol. She had to ask another person, who had to have another person enter the request in the computer for a doctor to authorize the request. Someone else had to follow the order in the computer to see when it was authorized so they could have another person go get the Tylenol and give it to someone to administer it to Jim. This is what the health system has become. As soon as you cross the threshold of a hospital, you leave personhood behind and become a liability to the health professionals and an expense to the insurers. I was kicking myself because I didn't have my purse with me. No self-respecting woman leaves home without pain medication. If I'd remembered it, we could have avoided this nonsense. While the process was working itself through, someone came in to take blood samples. At about 6.30, they wheeled Jim back to have a CT scan of his chest. Afterward, Jim was parked in the hallway outside the scan room, awaiting someone to return him to the closet. There were still so many people all over the place. It looked like a mass unit. We were in the hallway for a while when the CT technician emerged from his room and exclaimed, Oh, no one has come to get you yet? He chatted with us for a brief bit. He told us the ER was the busiest he'd ever seen it. Then he said, I'll wheel you back. The guy was really kind. He parked Jim back in the closet and parted by saying, Good luck. 
That's when I started to suspect something was really wrong. This man had seen the inside of Jim's chest. He was oddly nice in the middle of total chaos, going out of his way to do someone else's job to make Jim comfortable. All that, tied with a good luck bow, gave me pause. We continued to wait. It was going on 7.30 when a resident came in to talk to us. He was a handsome young Indian man who looked like he'd seen a ghost. He told us that they looked at Jim's CT scan and blood work. What followed was unexpected, unwanted, and shocking news. The residents said they found a mass in Jim's chest. His white blood cell count was abnormally high and his lymph nodes were swollen. The doctors suspected cancer. They just weren't sure what kind and the oncology resident in the ER would be in to talk to us. While he was trying to deliver this news, our closet neighbor knocked into him several times while shouting to Antarctica again. He was competing with her volume-wise while attempting to sensitively and caringly tell Jim he had cancer. The whole thing was chaotic, surreal, and inhumane. We weren't the only ones shocked by this news. That poor kid totally drew the short straw. To this day, I honestly feel bad for him. I think he was a first-year resident, and this may have been the first time he had to deliver terrible news under deplorable conditions. Though we heard the word cancer, we didn't yet understand the severity of Jim's illness. All I knew was that my husband looked and felt terrible. We were surrounded by a chamber of horrors, and we just received terrifying news. At that point, I just wanted to go home. The resident scurried off to summon the chief ER doctor in order to prevent an ill-advised exit. Upon her arrival, I told her we wanted to leave. She did her very best not to freak out. In hindsight, I understand why. While Jim's symptoms didn't seem much worse than a chest cold, they were indicative of something critical. She said they strongly advised we not go home and that a room was being prepared for Jim in the cancer center as we spoke. What? This can't be, I thought. None of this was sinking in fast enough. Certainly not as fast as the cancer was spreading through Jim's body. He's probably the healthiest, most active 56-year-old anyone has ever met. Now we're being told that our lives were changing drastically and would never be the same because we were entering a horrid, horrid world. My brain was stunned. It was going to take a while for it to catch up to the room. I never wished for a pulmonary embolism so badly. The oncology resident came in while we were still in the closet. He was a delicate-looking man who spoke softly and confidently. He was kind and measured as he explained that Jim would be admitted into the cancer center of the hospital. He said they suspected Jim had leukemia and that he would need to undergo a series of tests to verify the diagnosis and determine the actual type of leukemia. That's when the what, what, what loop started playing in my head. Meet your team. Shortly after our conversation with the oncology resident in the ER, Jim was admitted to the cancer center. After 11 hours with all of our emergency room friends, going to the cancer center was like checking into a spa. Despite the upgrade, I knew the charm would wear off quickly. A number of people came in and out to talk to us. Though the hyperactivity was fast becoming a blur, 
I was able to grasp the fact that they needed to start running tests on Jim immediately in order to understand what kind of cancer he had. Finally, after languishing unnoticed in the ER, there was a sense of urgency around Jim's care. It now felt like the doctors were working to get ahead of the sands in the hourglass that the Wicked Witch of the West turned over for Dorothy. The cancer was moving quickly. The sooner they figured out the type of leukemia Jim had, the faster they could create a treatment plan to start beating it back. The next morning, we were introduced to Jim's dedicated team. Before I describe this meeting, I'll share that my definition of a team is a group of people brought together with complementary strengths and skills to collaborate for the purpose of achieving a common goal. A team has a coach who is ultimately accountable for the team's actions. The coach is adept at creating work environments that are ripe for cooperation and collaboration so the team can hit that sweet spot of efficiency and peak performance. A team is rudderless without a coach. It can settle into groupthink, get pushed off course by a dominant player, and generally run amok. The doctors who showed up that morning were proud to introduce us to our dedicated healthcare team, which seemed to consist of about 100 people, most of whom looked like they were the age of our kids. It quickly became clear that we did not have a shared definition of team. I guess if one's idea of a team is a group of people standing next to each other, then sure, it was a team. From my vantage point, however, this group of people standing next to each other seemed to be more like a mob. The introductions felt like a well-choreographed sales pitch. Roswell Park Cancer Center, one of our cancer center's big competitors, is just an hour away, so I guess they wanted to put their best effort into a ta-da-like moment so we wouldn't be tempted to go elsewhere. We're your team. You can call on us for anything. We're all here for you. I'm Dr. So-and-so, this is Dr. So-and-so, this is Nurse So-and-so, etc., etc. When I started to ask who was a doctor and who was a resident, a sense of discomfort entered the room. Our discomfort was already off the charts, but I guess there's always room for more. There was a lot of weight shifting and shoe scrutiny. I understand that, yes, a resident is a doctor. However, I wanted to know who in the room had the years of experience with Jim's disease. It was becoming abundantly clear that Jim's diagnosis was serious. I didn't want to sift through 50 people to get to the expert. We were in peak crisis mode. Our new healthcare team was focused on presenting their flat organizational model to a man who was critically ill, exhausted, and traumatized. No one person emerged as the coach who was responsible for organizing this crowd of people in our room. This introduction was not well thought out from the patient perspective. If one inquiry had managed to surface from the cacophony of questions clanging in my head, I didn't know where to direct it because I was addressing an audience. An audience, by the way, that didn't display any evidence of genuine human emotion. It was unsettling. While one person talked, the rest of the group stared at us without showing any affect. Jim and I felt like Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Later, we found that individually, many of these providers were warm and personable, but as a team, they were like zombies. Suffice it to say, this presentation did not instill confidence. Familiar words came out of my mouth. Everyone equals no one. As it turned out, we also did not have a shared definition of the word dedicated. What was left out of that initial presentation was that our dedicated team was only dedicated from 9 to 5 Monday through Friday for a few weeks, give or take. Then a new team would rotate in. 
There was a nightly shift change with completely different people who weren't part of our team, per se, but one of them had a team member's phone number. Weekends were an entirely different story. There were a lot less people, and they were not our team either. They were people who kept the ball rolling until Monday at 9. And of course, team members get sick and have vacation time, so odds are you won't see the team you met on day one in its original configuration ever again. It's best not to have any major issues at night, on the weekends, or during the holidays. In addition, there are more teams from other departments that will rotate through to check other presenting issues who have nothing to do with the original team. No one from your team accompanies those departmental teams, so you won't have any feeling of continuity or confidence that any one person is really looking out for you. The team members took turns talking at a brisk tempo in controlled, monotone voices. It felt like someone was throwing small rocks at my head in rapid succession while my arms were pinned to my sides. The last person to talk ended their dissertation with what came across as feigned empathy. I know it's a lot. Do you have any questions? Huh. Let me see. We're standing here, paralyzed with fear, and drenched by a fire hose of information. What should my question be? Can I buy a fucking vowel? My brain was sparking like an old toaster about to catch fire while it tried to process all of this information. As I stood there, mouth agape and eyes glazed, everyone left the room, mistaking my paralysis for, No questions? Okay, well you can call us any time if you do have questions. Yeah, right. By the time I could talk, the entire team had rotated out. Even the social worker, who might be an appropriate person to provide some continuity, gave a rapid 10-minute info dump after the team left, before scurrying off to meet other patient demands. By then, my head felt like a speed bag. Finding a team member in the first week turned into a treasure hunt. What we ultimately learned was that if you have a question, ask your current nurse, who will ask or leave a message for someone else. During that process, lots of other things will happen like cancer, pain, sadness, fear, attention to life outside the hospital. You almost forget what the heck you asked until the impetus for the question recurs, and then you try to track down where your question ended up in the process, which is likely nowhere because it slipped through the cracks at shift change, so you start all over again with your new nurse. Everyone equals no one. In hindsight, I realized that my anger and irritations were ignited by ambiguous processes and systems rather than by individuals. Holistic health care of a person is greatly diminished when one enters a health system. It's not crazy talk to say that supporting a holistic approach to the health care of an individual is more likely to achieve improved health outcomes as opposed to viewing someone in pieces. Throughout the week, Jim felt more and more like the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz after the flying monkeys tossed his body parts all over the place. They tore my legs off and they threw them over there. Then they tore my chest out and they threw it over there. We were desperately clinging to every piece of information and trying to organize it in a way that made sense to us. For our struggling minds, the team concept created an expectation of care continuity, but the constant revolving door of people, places, and equipment did not align with that concept. It's no exaggeration to say that you could fill a lecture hall with all of the people who saw Jim in that first week. The mismanagement of our expectations was cruel. What we really needed was one person who could help guide our education on Jim's disease, explain the complexity of care options and the resulting effects, 
connect us to a wider breadth of relevant patient information and resources, and the heads up on what we could expect with each step. All I remember receiving in that first week was a piece of paper that said his cancer had a 90% remission rate. I later learned that those statistics didn't apply to someone Jim's age. It seemed like everyone we talked to had a paper and pencil set. When we needed the person with the Crayola 120 pack, complete with crayon sharpener. Hell, I would have settled for someone with the 64 pack. I've since learned that some cancer centers have professionals on staff called patient navigators. This person has all the crayons. The absence of such a guiding hand on our team left us feeling lost and alone much of the time. A dull gray outlook doesn't ignite hope. You're listening to Promethean Project, A Mortal Reckoning. If you are enjoying our story, please subscribe to the podcast from your favorite streaming service. To learn more, visit my website at www.prometheanprojectamr.com. There you'll find a donate button. Funds go to support the groundbreaking research of the Herans Lab at Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, a lab dedicated to researching T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Contributions of any size are welcome and greatly appreciated by the patients, families, and healthcare workers who are waging their own wars against this cancer. A special thank you to the Wilmot Cancer Center's nurses and doctors. My family is deeply grateful to you for the compassionate care you gave Jim. Promethean Project was written, performed, and produced by Jennifer Sanfilippo. Theme music in this episode was written by Jamie Malley and arranged and performed by Mike Kedley. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Episode 3.